2: Welcome. Welcome to the nook. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Come in. I know, I know. We were below freezing for a few days, and now, now, now we're back up, hovering at seventy. Well, come on in. Sit. Choose. Warm beverage or cold. It's that kind of season. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and I'll not talk too much this week. We have a nicely rounded show this evening. A story by Tim LaBone. The stuff of the stars leaking. You'll like it. And Mike Allen, missing for a good reason last month. He'll tell you all about it. Mike... Will take us on a tour of the abattoir during which he will essay a novel by last week's author Laird Baron, to wit, Laird's formerly hard to find and now available on Kindle novel, *The Light Is the Darkness*, a book I quite like. Dave will also review the new puking subteen Jewish exorcist film, now with more dibbets, *The Possession*, and. Maybe in honor of the return of the Walking Dead to the tube, but maybe not. Mike and Shalyn Hurlbert will also discuss two count 'em, two zombie films: Dead Air, aptly named, and the wonderful Pontypool, both of which feature zombie sieges at radio stations. Speaking, by the way, of Laird Baron. I again want to thank Dave Robison for an exceptional job on a great tale last week, Frontier Death Song," one of the best narrations I've ever heard. Dave, thank you for it. Well, as I say, I'll try not to talk too much this week, but there are a few things we have to cover. Remember this, the Starship Sofas webinar, yes? The one with Joe Haldeman? That is coming up. Sunday, November 11, 4 p.m., Greenwich Mean Time. The subject, How to Write Science Fiction, discussed by one of the most honored practitioners in the field. Go, click on the button, reserve your place before the places are no more. And we are so close. It's been a long haul and a hard road, but Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, will be out in less than two weeks. And, of course, we want you to buy it, to love it, to give it as a gift, to save it in perpetuity, to bring it out from time to time, to show it, open and savor it, read aloud, but sparingly from it. We've been trying to find ways, more effective than my talking about it during our little gathers here in the Nook, ways in which to market the thing. So if you can think of anything, anything that won't cost, dare I say, an arm, a leg, and an eyeball, let us know. In fact, if you can think of anything that we can do that'll be free to help sell the book, that is the thing we want to do. Our co-editor, Harry Markov has been burning his eyes down to the optic nerves, proofing and setting up what he calls blog tours to get the word out about the book. He asked me to do some of those. I, I don't know what blog tours are, but I'll do it. Here is one, and I'm not sure where it's going. What is it turns perfectly ordinary people into those sorts who hug the dark, Let me begin at the beginning. Puggy, who was me, aged four, hated Sundays, hated church, hated being readied and tightly dressed. This was Sunday. I was scrubbed and suited, smelling of Lifebuoy stuffed in prickly tweed, a razor-sharp collar at my throat— I was in the bathroom with Nana, who muscled down my calic with spit and a glower. She raked the comb through my knots with a sunday litany of hers. Goodness gracious, how do you let your hair get so knotty? Goodness puggy, don't be so shushlik. Shushlik being a Pennsylvania Dutch word for fidgety. Mother and father were late and lazy in their room, getting ready slowly. And downstairs, Pop-Pop listened to war news, Gabriel Peter reporting on the radio. I heard it distant, all as usual. Nana took a final few pulls on my hair, shook her head to disavow the work, and grabbed my hand. Come on, Puggy, stop your dawdling! And on to the stairs, down one, two, three... Nana stopped. Mid-descent, her hand squeezed mine hard, then again and again hard, loose, hard, hard, loose, as though sending a message in the dark. Then, of all things, she sat. Nana sat on the steps, slid down the wall, halfway from the top to the bottom. She sat and from her came a wavy, moaning, Halloween-like call. Oh, 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 Puggy, I can't hear, can't see. Her head began banging against the wall, her hand squeezing, squeezing, sending, sending, saying something. Well, this <laughs> was just too much. Nana? Nana? Nana was a hard woman, a stern eye for things wrong, for things not clean, not orderly, not one to smile or be silly, Nana. So, naturally, I thought this was the finest, funniest moment of my life. And so I laughed loudly. Nana is funny. She is finally funny. And I pulled away. I ran down the steps to tell Pop-Up, who by now had heard the calls and the thumping of Nana's head against the wall. Mother "'whose mother Nana was, and my father came from their room, "'and Pop-Pop shoved me aside as he came up the stairs, "'and I was left at the bottom looking up, laughing, "'still laughing loud, watching, hearing three familiar voices "'calling out two of her name's mother, Carrie. "'She lingered for three days, "'and when she died everything became quiet "'and very solemn in the house, and everywhere we went.' And when she was buried, Papa looked at me like never before, and he said, Nana was dying, and you, you were laughing. He said it in a way that was different than ever before. And of course, I knew it had been my fault, Nana's death. Now, as I look at what I've written here, I realize it might seem as though. I were saying, having killed my Nana when I was four turned me into a writer of horror and things dark. Well, it's not quite that. There are those who've come far closer to death in their small years who never became devourers of the darkness. Something did seep through the skin, through the Sunday tweed and starch, though, and, and it turned me. The particulars, maybe. Uh, The details, the sound of Nana's head on the wall, the singing moan of my childhood name, Oh, Puggy, Puggy, oh! The misunderstanding that Nana was funny, being finally funny as her life slipped away. My grandfather's face as he looked at me, the jowls that quivered, the eyes behind those glasses. Nana was dying, and you were laughing the silences that we all moved in for so long, the silence that made me finally laugh, something in all of that has remained and is still a part of me, obviously. Then, then, <laughs> then, death was so far away from me and so impossible a thing that death and the darkness became just parts of a story. Then the story became... A Lifetime. Well, I'm glad you're here, and I hope you'll keep coming back to the Nook every week as Tales to Terrify tells you tales from the dark side of the universe. And I hope you'll take a look at Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, when it hits the market this Halloween. You will, won't you? Yes and you'll spread the word to every Middlesex village and farm, yes? Yes. Okay. As promised, here are a few minutes spent in the abattoir with our genteel hosts, Mike Allen and Shalen Hurlbert. Guys, here you go. Number nine.
3: Greetings, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome to installment number nine of Tour of the Abattoir. I'm Mike Allen, and once again, I have a lot of unhallowed ground to cover. My buddy Shallon Hurlbert is back, and we're going to share with you our profound discussion of movies about radio stations besieged by zombies. But first... I owe everybody an explanation and an apology of sorts. If you're a regular listener to Tales to Terrify, then you know this is a monthly column and we skipped a month. We were AWOL in September. The reason involved good news for me. I have a novel coming out. It's scheduled to appear before the end of the year. Knock on wood. It's called the Black Fire Concerto. And my one-sentence summary goes like this. A pair of spell-casting musicians battle ghouls and evil sorcerers in a post-apocalyptic world. The Blackfire Concerto is being released as an e-book by Gate, the Sword and Sorcery Guys. And though it's a fantasy novel, there's certainly plenty of horror in it, I'm pretty bloody excited. However... The due date for me to get final edits in was October 1st, and I wasn't able to finish those and make time to complete a September podcast as well. So, apologies all around. But now, I'm back on the ball. If you have been a regular listener since Tales to Terrify launched, you've heard me talk a lot about Laird Barron in this column and if you weren't familiar with his work before that should have changed last week when larry santaro included a reading of laird's new novelette frontier death song i understand it was very popular and if you haven't given it a listen yet you most certainly should In my last column, I reviewed Laird's second novel, The Croning, which will be a lot of people's first encounter with him as it received a wide release through Nightshade Books. However, since that review, I'm pleased to say that I got my hands on his much more difficult-to-find first novel, which is called The Light is the Darkness. It was originally released as a very expensive limited edition in 2011, but is now available through print-on-demand in paperback. You can order it on Amazon.com and through other online bookstores. It's a short hallucinatory novel that has a lot in common with his earlier stories, such as Hallucigenia. As is often true in Laird's fiction, The Light is the Darkness is yet another tale of an intelligent but brutish man up against supernatural beings that, while not taken from H.P. Lovecraft's mythos, evoke some of the same cosmic awe. The novel follows the path of Conrad, a very big-boned boy who has amassed wealth by participating in an underground sporting league wherein gladiators fight to the death. Conrad's undefeated in this game, but as we catch up to him, he is searching for his missing sister— who is an FBI agent who was herself on the trail of an evil scientist and cult leader who is responsible for the death of their oldest brother. It may sound a little convoluted, but the narrative hurtles forward with mounting paranoia, bloody action, and a little bit of humor here and there. It moves much quicker than his other novel, The Croning, but in the end doesn't quite achieve the same depths of creepiness. It's more surreal than scary in how it finally winds down. It's still a delight. I recommend you seek it out by all means in all its pulpy glory, but I can't help but feel that the perfect Laird Baron novel would fall somewhere between these two books and be a mutant hybrid of the best qualities of both. Hopefully we'll see such a creature in the not-too-distant future. I wanted to mention as well that Anita, my wife, and I saw the new demonic possession film, somewhat unoriginally titled The Possession, and though the plot unfolded in a paint-by-numbers manner for this sort of movie— I mean, don't all exorcism movies seem at heart to have the dubious theme that when a girl is about to come of age, it's somehow much more terrifying for everyone else around her? (laughs) And The Possession definitely delves into that theme. Despite that, I enjoyed it. It's worth, I believe, at least a Netflix watch or a $1 Redbox rental. The twist, as you've probably heard, is that the, quote, demon, unquote, is a Dybbuk, a creature from Jewish folklore, and the exorcist is a rabbi. Though these elements are indeed refreshing as they play out on screen, a word to the wise, my friends Rose Lemberg and Sonia Tafe, who both have a lot of expertise in Jewish folklore, tell me the movie's explanation for what a dibbok is amounts to complete balderdash. So really, what you end up with is a watered-down PG-13 movie done in something of Sam Raimi's frenetic style, which is only fitting as he is the producer of the film, and that is not the worst thing in the world. It could be, though, that part of why I liked it as much as I did was because the last Exorcism film I watched, The Devil Inside... Which makes use of paranormal activity style quote, found footage unquote, was a piece of utter garbage. My buddy Shalyn Hurlbert watched it with me, and he can attest that it is not even worth a dollar rental. Now, speaking of Shalyn Hurlbert, as I said once again, he is back with me, and without further ado, let's proceed to the live portion of this podcast and find out just what it is about radio stations that make them, of late, so attractive to zombies. Hello, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome to the quote-live-unquote portion of Tour of the Abattoir. Joining me once again is Shallon Hulbert Hello, everyone. And before we get going on our topic of discussion for today, oh, we want to issue a little correction... And apology... Alert listener Simon made a point on the Tales to Terrify blog of mentioning that when we were discussing the Alien movies last time, we incorrectly attributed Alien Resurrection to Luc Besson. Shallon and I both know that Luc Besson did not direct Alien Resurrection, but somehow that got past us in the spur of the moment.
4: Right. It's Jean Genet who did Amelie. And a couple other movies. Delicatessen is probably his biggest genre film.
3: Well, don't forget you've Lost Children. Oh yes, yes. Thank you, Simon, for listening and for caring enough to let us know that you're listening, even if it was to tell us we were wrong. <laughs> and now we have watched, not quite back to back, but in close succession. 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 Two very similar movies about radio stations surrounded by zombies, and yet they could not be more different. We've seen Dead Air. And Pontypool. And Pontypool. 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 Pontypool.
4: Pontypool. I like working in themes, and... For instance, I I run a a little barbecue every once in a while at my house called the Apocalypse where we cook a million pork dishes. And the very first one, we watched three pig-themed horror movies, all of which were terrible, but it was fun. I'm sort of curious if there is a good pig-themed horror movie. I don't know. There's a 70s one called Razorback that I kind of want to see, but that's the only one we didn't see.
3: There's Clive Barker's Pig's Blood Blues, but I don't know if it's been made into a movie.
4: Yeah, not sure. There's been some pretty good pig-related horror, but not necessarily movie-made about it. But anyway. Um, Anyway, I like grouping-themed films. Going across my Netflix queue, I found a movie called Dead Air, and it seemed to have a little positive buzz about it. And it was about a radio show that happens to be going live at the same time as what was advertised as a zombie outbreak. I was also a big fan of the movie Pontypool, about a radio show that, well on air, encounters a form of zombie
3: attack. A very interesting form of zombie attack. We should probably try to dispense with dead air first. Um, And please dispense. Shallon generally cuts movies more slack than I do, generally. And when Shallon passed this along to me to watch, he basically said... You'd best get it over with because it's terrible. And I thought, wow, if Shallon says it's terrible, it must really have some things to recommend it. <laughs> and as, as it turns out, it was not the worst movie ever made. But not only is it not a great movie, as a bad movie, it's not that much fun. Right.
4: After watching it, I looked up the people involved on IMDb. It is directed by Corbin Burnson, which you may remember as one of the lead actors in L.A. Law for many, many years. I don't know that he's to blame really for for how badly the movie turned out. I, the, I don't the, think the his... script
3: has to take some credit, right, right. But I'm not sure directing is his first skill. Exactly. If if <laughs> if I
4: were Corbin Burnson and I watched this movie after I created it. I would feel badly enough that I would go back to acting. I'm sure he's a wonderful person. I just, you know, when your mom says, maybe this just isn't for you, that message might well be passed on to Corbin Bernson about this movie.
3: I'll try and do a sort of capsule review. Horror icon Bill Moseley, who stars as the DJ who is the main character, gives a good performance. His part is also probably the best written. Patricia Tallman, as his producer, is basically completely wasted as a woman who looks pretty in a tight sweater who gets to be a hostage. It's a real shame if you're a fan at all from her Babylon 5 days.
4: I'm Uh, also a huge fan of her work in the uh, remake of Night of the Living Dead. She was fantastic in that, portrayed real fear and a lot of emotion in a character that in the original film was a fairly weak, standard, She played fainting, Barbara, right? Yeah, she's Barbara. But in the original, the actress played her as kind of your classic fainting, female... In a in right. a bad situation. Right. And Patricia Tallman took that character and really made it into somebody
3: strong and capable. And alas, you won't see that in this movie. No. The other characters were generally nonsensical in their behavior. <laughs> and here's maybe, for me, one of the movie's greatest sins. It essentially proposes a zombie outbreak caused by a Muslim terrorist plot. And yet, the movie, instead of sticking with this premise, for better or for worse, came across to me like the writers behind it originally had this idea, but then became so worried about being accused of Islamophobia that instead of switching to another reason for the uh, plague to happen, we end up with these Arabic terrorists of no particular Country or explain origin, and and at this and at the same time, there are other things in the movie that are kind of shoehorned in that seem to be an attempt on the part of the screenwriters to say, no, we're not actually criticizing Muslims, but we apparently couldn't figure out a way to back out of this plot, so we're going to show that this main character is very tolerant by midway through the movie revealing that he has a Muslim wife. Or at least a, a non-specific, non-white wife
4: uh, with vaguely Arabic features.
3: The whole thing becomes a big distraction because the movie sort of ends up tripping down this strange road where it comes off like it's almost trying to be a sort of message movie about tolerance. Right. While still being about a terrorist attack that causes... Yeah. uh, I
4: I have a good friend, um, named Kevin, who really, really hates the zombie as virus. And I tend to not worry so much about it. It seems likely as anything to cause zombieism in a horror movie. But he sees it as just a movie about sick people. It's not as interesting if they aren't really monsters so much as just unfortunate people. Usually, like I said, I'm of the mind that it's not that big a deal so long as you got your zombies in there. But in this case, it was just really, really poorly done. It was sort of a... In pretty much every way. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you look at 28 Days Later, which I think is a really great zombie virus outbreak movie, the zombies themselves are what's compelling... In Dead Air, the zombies are more like rabid people with bleeding eyes. There's nothing really coherent about their behavior. Some of them seem to be extremely vicious and mindless. Some of them seem to have some kind of volition. It was just all over the place.
3: And, and not very scary as, as zombies go. No, not at all. Let's flip now to the well-done radio zombie movie. Right. We, we are not recommending Dead Air. I think this might be the first time we're not recommending a film.
4: Right. If you want to do like we did, a compare and contrast to see how a good, slow-burn, paranoid zombie film can be done, and a bad one who tries to shove it down your throat, which is not a very good way to do a slow burn, I say that a lot with a lot of the movies you watch. It's a slow burn. But uh, in this case, Pontypool really pulls it off. And mm. slow, slow. Slow, slow burn. Slow burn.
3: To explain why we're doing that, Pontypool has one of the most fascinating uh, zombie origin tropes that I think I have ever seen. It proposes a form of spreading the disease, so to speak, that is done verbally through I don't know how to describe it. Through through memes, almost. Right, but not memes like rage
4: guy, troll face memes. More the way that Richard Dawkins coined the phrase to be an idea that embeds itself and is repeated through constant use and or some other force of volition.
3: Certain words can become infected, and the person who is infected becomes sort of mentally
4: at one point, they explained it as like a, a free-ranging radio transmitter, just someone who is now spreading the virus by wandering and speaking. And in the later stages of the disease, they become very violent before dying.
3: Right. Apparently, an interesting twist on the old uh, Dan O'Bannon must-eat-brains version of the zombie legend. Alleviating your symptoms involves attempting to kill someone else, not necessarily to eat them, but to... It's described as trying to pull yourself inside the other person. As a survival tactic of the virus
4: to spread itself as far and wide as it can, to become close to people and speak and thereby infect them. And if I could interpret it, it seems like that impulse becomes violent as the disease progresses.
3: Yes. Pontypool is based on a novel by Tony Burgess called Pontypool Changes Everything, which I have not read, but I'm pretty fascinated by the idea of it at least. The movie stars a bunch of Canadian actors who you probably have not heard of. I didn't recognize any of the names, but it's extremely well acted, very well written. The main character, just for reference, I don't
4: remember his name right now, if any of you saw Watchmen, he was the original Night Owl. So he has been in some bigger Hollywood productions as well.
3: If it had a flaw, and this is a very mild criticism, something that I understand as a writer, when you're working with a really far-fetched concept, which Pontypool is, there are times... I'm nodding as though you all can see me. Right, <laughs> He's practicing the movie's advice and not actually speaking, so he right, won't right. get infected. There are times, for example, there's a character who is a scientist who is produced at some point who attempts to explain the phenomenon. Some kind of medical doctor. Right. And it's good that the characters around him are all reacting incredulously to what he's saying, because... I guess I myself was listening and saying, okay, I understand that as an explanation of the phenomenon we've been watching. But to me, it still doesn't quite click as something that makes sense. However, the rest of the movie is so well done that there's a point where you have to say, okay, I understand that I have to accept on faith that this is how it works for the story to continue. So... I am going to go ahead and give this to you, even though I'm maybe not personally sold. And I found I had to do that at a couple points in the movie. But good Lord, if that's all that's wrong with it, (laughs) that is absolutely no reason to avoid it.
4: (laughs) Right. If I have one complaint about the movie, it's that it tries too hard to explain what's going on. And it doesn't really need an explanation. I don't mean explanation. Oh my gosh, they're passing a virus by talking. I mean, they try really hard to produce some kind of coherent explanation for why it might be happening. and In, and a, I, in a
3: way, you just gave the same criticism I did, but from right. a different angle.
4: Right. And like a lot of horror movies, it's not that I don't care, but if you can get away with not explaining everything, then you did a good job of making it compelling in and of itself. In the first movie we discussed, Dead Air, they over explained that it's a virus past on, like, much like rabies and blah, blah, blah. And it turned what could have been more frightening zombies into, like, my friend Kevin would say, just sick people. Although, actually, those zombies weren't very frightening anyway. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it's a poor example, but it's the closest thing that comes to
3: mind. Yeah, I agree with you in that suppose the Doctor character was not ever introduced. Right. Or was not brought in as a sort of obvious explanation man, as he seems to function in the story, and so they never actually get what's supposed to be an official explanation of what they're dealing with. That might make it an even stronger movie yeah i think so too there are points throughout the movie where they get some kind of
4: information about what's going on that is garbled by what i would call the telephone effect like you say it to one person then the next person hears it and it it gets misinterpreted over time so they get these conflicting explanations for and descriptions of what's going on outside and i think that was enough Dropping the Doctor character in, it it was what it was. And I don't think it really lessens the enjoyment of the movie. I think it's just, if there was one thing, that was it.
3: What fascinated me was how this is really a movie about communication in a way that I have never seen in a zombie film. Right. Here's a spoiler. One of the most fascinating things about the movie is the characters involved discover the solution, but in attempting to explain it, they are assumed to be sick. And we end up with an ending that is, in a way, a tribute to the Night of the Living Dead. (laughs) Exactly. Um, It's hard to, to talk about any
4: zombie movie without mentioning a link to Night of the Living Dead. It was really the first big zombie movie hit. And one of the main themes of that movie was the idea that the monsters are us. That that is the nature of the human. In this movie, the monsters are us in a way that's a, a little bit more down to earth. In a very creative way. Yes, exactly. Like we said before, it has to do with the spreading of ideas. There was a work by somebody else. I think Neil Stephenson, it might have been in Snow Crash, where the idea of an infectious idea was posited. So it's, it's not the first time that you'll see or hear this concept. I remember as a kid, I read this story that really scared me at the time. If I went back and read it now, it would probably be ridiculous. But the idea was that sometime in the future, people were exposed to enough information that their brains would hit their memory capacity. And they would stop in the middle of whatever they were doing when it hit that point and just continue repeating the last thing that they said over and over. Fascinating. I could see that dovetailing with this movie. Exactly. And, And this movie made me think about that. It's kind of interesting because if you think about it, the human brain does eventually have a memory limit that we don't really understand or get. I mean, there are estimates. As such, it is just a computer, albeit a biological one and an imperfect one. So I don't think it's too far-fetched that a repetition error could occur in some way, the same way that you get a virus or a worm on your computer. I might be going a little bit too much into the mechanics of the film, and I'd like to move on to more what makes the film a good horror movie and what makes it scary. What makes the movie particularly scary, at least to me, is a sense of isolation and lack of information. They are cut off from the world and hearing about the tragedy that's going on outside and hearing it through other people's explanations. And
3: to me, that's one... And the explanations don't make a lot
4: of sense. Right. There's a particularly chilling point in the movie that really, it sticks with me, and, and every once in a while I think about it, regardless of what I've been watching. And one of the reporters is stuck in a silo hiding from the crowd of zombies, and there's another survivor who's run and crawled in with him, who's just, his body is broken, he's missing his hands. He's pretty much beyond help, but he's saying something and they lean in. This is all heard through a cell phone that's kind of garbled, but he leans in and puts the cell phone up to this kid's mouth, and he's perfectly mimicking the sound of a baby crying inside of an automobile. It's at that point that our main character... Loses his grip as well and tries to sort of explain to his audience what's going on. And he says, basically, we just heard from our reporter who's interviewing a baby locked in a car inside the voice of a young man. And it's that kind of complete disconnect from logic and reality that really shakes me.
3: There's a lot of great moments in Pontypool that are like that.
4: Yeah. It is very hard.
0: For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
3: Explain the movie. But it's not hard to convey our enthusiasm for it for certain. I am very glad that uh, Shalom talked me into watching it. I highly recommend to you folks seeking it out if you have not seen it yet. However, avoid dead air. If I could say one or two final
4: things. Go for it. Even if... You don't dig the zombie genre. There's a lot to be said about this movie anyway. The directing is great. The acting is great. They have some really beautiful visuals, even though most of the concept of the movie is the lack of visual information that the characters have. And definitely stay through the credits. The credit cookie is fascinating. <laughs> no explaining it. You just gotta see it. Yes, definitely worthwhile. Remember. Honey the cat is
2: still missing.
1: Honey is still missing.
2: Oh no no no. Honey the cat is now living on our back porch and is trying to get in. Oh, thanks, Mike and Shalyn. I absolutely agree. Pontypool is a most excellent zombie film. Fridays are for tales to terrify here in the Nook. But Saturdays, well, Saturdays. Saturdays are film nights here with friends in the larger apartment. And a few months ago, we watched Pontypool. The visuals, the sound, the acting, and in particular, the acting by Stephen McCaddy is superb. I recommend it. And obviously, this little Canadian indie film has a wide audience. Straw Dog Theatre Company here in Chicago, an excellent company, has just opened a stage adaptation of Pontypool. I've not seen it yet, but you never can tell. It's at Straw Dog Theatre, 3829 North Broadway, in Chicago, and it runs through November 4th. And thanks again, guys. And Mike, all the best with the new book. We'll see you next month, yes? Yes. And now, yes, fiction. Our tale tonight comes from British writer Tim LeBone, who just moments ago finished his Star Wars novelization. Tim is a Londoner who now lives in Monmouthshire, South Wales, He's published more than 20 novels, dozens of novellas, hundreds of short stories, and for his novelization of one of my favorite vampire films, 30 Days of Night, he is a New York Times best-selling author. His recent books include The Secret Journeys of Jack London, The Wild, co-authored with Christopher Golden, Echo City, The Island, The Map of Moments, also with Christopher Golden, and Bar Nunn. He's won four British Fantasy Awards, a Bram Stoker Award for his short story, Reconstructing Amy, and a Scribe Award. He's been a finalist for the International Horror Guild, Shirley Jackson, and World Fantasy Awards. Recently, Fox 2000 acquired the film rights to The Secret Journeys of Jack London. Several more novels and novellas of his are in development, and you can meet Tim at his website, www.timlebbon.net. Here is The Stuff of the Stars Leaking.
5: There was a clear dividing line between grass and sand, as if the beach advanced further inland night by night, and, as yet, no breeze had come to blur the latest step. Shrubs held their baleful heads above the golden tide, and the shells of dead things surfed long-drawn-out waves. Yet Bryn saw little of this. He passed across that sheer border between land and water, with his mind elsewhere. His wife had died a thousand miles from here, but she was never far away and as he imagined her car plunging into the sea, he smelled seaweed and brine and rotting things. Gulls screamed in the waning light, mourning further losses. The sea always made him maudlin. As death edged closer day by day, it was a state he felt content with. Sometimes he imagined her waiting for him, wherever she was now. Bryn's legs were aching from the walk down the cliff path. And he was already beginning to dread the climb back up. Glancing along the beach to the west, he could see the sun dipping into the darkening waters. It caught stray clouds as it fell, bleeding pinkly across their backs. He paused, looked back at the cliffs, wondering whether he should leave this until morning. But the path seemed quite safe, and of course, there was the dead thing on the beach, past the dunes, down near the sea.
1: From the cliff tops, it had been barely visible little more than a smudge across the sands, a shape losing clarity to distance.
5: Even using binoculars, the image had been unresolved, though it had presented a most disturbing insinuation of size. Bryn was awed, but dissatisfied. He knew he would need a trip down to view it firsthand. He mounted the last dune. In the soft light of the setting sun, he could see the shape just above the waterline. He made a trail across virgin sands, each step a gentle hush against the soporific sigh of the sea. Sometimes he wondered whether, if he succumbed to the ocean's hypnotic charms, he would wake up even when the water rushed into his mouth. Approaching the thing, he realised that it was far larger than he had realised. A whale, perhaps? The local newspaper had called it a monster, but of course it would. Good for tourism. Building sand bridges was their main concern. He stopped fifty paces from the corpse, close enough to view it in some detail. It lay on the beach like a huge lump of wax, melted and congealed many times over, picking up imperfections with each burn and set. Mottled and split though its surface was, however, there were no barnacles suckered to its leathery hide, no seaweed hanging
1: from its appendages. It was as though all life had eschewed this creature. Bryn knelt in the sand and took his camera from his rucksack, imagining what Helen would have thought of this. She'd have created a
5: million stories about this thing's final hours, drawing in all manner of inconceivable ideas and waterlogged fantasies to construct her own version of events. Perhaps she'd been daydreaming when she died, living stories in her head while death crept up from behind, pushing the car over a cliff and drowning her. As he began taking photos, changing position every couple of shots, the stench hit him. It must have been there before, but shock had obviously dulled his senses. It was not putrefaction, exactly, nor was it the tang of insides exposed to the elements. He held a handkerchief over his mouth with one hand as he snapped photos with the other. The size of the thing stunned him. It was so big he could not conceive what may have killed it. Could it really just die? Something this magnificent? and wash up on this innocuous beach? As he circled the creature, he saw tentacles buried in sand, surfacing a dozen feet further on, dipping in again, giving the classic sea monster silhouette. He nudged one tentacle with his shoe. There was a sudden shrill cry, startling him so much that he dropped the camera, stumbled and tripped over his own feet. Several seagulls descended and tried to alight on the shape, but they could only hover there, unable to land, repulsed by something, screeching in agitation until they flew away. Bryn gasped and instantly wished he had not. The smell was even worse. He gagged, sought control of his stomach, then puked anyway. Afterward, he grabbed his camera and left, walking faster than he would have cared to admit. He did not look back. In his caravan, waiting for his soup to warm, Bryn wondered why the prickly feeling on the back of his neck would not go away. Darkness tried to sneak through the cracks in the window panes. Its pressure was almost discernible. Pressing in like gas at a vacuum, he shivered and drew the curtains. It did nothing to hide the massive outside. He did not want to see out in case he saw someone looking in, their face bathed in light borrowed from the moon to scare him, their eyes unlit, even from without. He sagged into his chair and sighed. He was acting like a kid. He'd always been cautious of the dark. That's what he told people. Cautious. Never really afraid, even when he was young. Cautious. Like he was around electricity or acid. He treated them with respect lest they hurt him, and he respected the dark equally. He thought it was the reaction most likely to be welcomed by whatever lived there. As the soup plopped and blubbered in the saucepan, he examined his camera. The damp sand had buffered its fall, but grains had somehow worked their way into the mechanism. He removed the batteries and put the camera away, searching through piles of notebooks and scraps of paper for his cheap spare. The smell of artificial tomatoes hung heavy in the air. Bryn had a fleeting aromatic memory of eating with Helen in an Italian restaurant in Cardiff, and then he was on the floor. Throughout it all, he knew what was happening, but he had no control. His arms and legs buffeted the cheap carpet. His heels beat hard, shaking the whole caravan. His head lifted, fell... Lifted and fell again, as if an invisible hand gripped his hair, its owner determined to shatter his skull. His fingers flicked at the floor as his arms rose and fell, and he heard his nails cracking. His back arched, then jerked straight. He tried to grit his teeth against the pain, but they crunched together, and he tasted blood and the gravel of chipped enamel. He thrashed like a landed fish. And he saw things. His eyes turned up in his head to view the terrible fantasies he had created. The images of what Helen suffered during her final few moments of life. Violent waters surged, snapping things flitting in and out of the waves, and then a cool, deep darkness promising only a cold death. And something down there, waiting. Shock held him and whipped him around, but one thought swept insanely around his head throughout the whole episode. I won't piss myself. I won't shit myself again and again.
1: In that respect, at least, his determination held out. It was seconds or minutes before the fit subsided,
5: instantly and without warning. As he lay still on the floor, panting and sweating and scared of the silence, Bryn's muscles continued to twitch and knot. Something sighed against the outside of the caravan, through a chink in the curtains, silhouetted by a tentative half-moon, He saw a breath fading slowly from the cool pane,
1: revealing the stars to him once more. Eventually, he made it to bed. He hid beneath the blankets and did not sleep. In the morning, in the light, things seemed different.
5: Bryn knew it was foolish, but the sun seemed to titillate the logical side of his mind. He'd had a fit for the first time in his life. He was scared, but thankful that he had not badly damaged himself. His fingers were sore, his head was bruised and thumping, but there were no broken bones. He would go to the doctor as soon as he arrived back in Cardiff.
1: Everything was normal. As he arrived at the edge of the cliff and began his descent, a dreadful smell assailed him. It was worse than the
5: stink of the day before, far richer, more gritty. It reminded him of the colour brown and white noise, as if he was smelling everything at once. He gagged, sure he was going to be sick again, but somehow he kept control of his guts. Leaning over, staring down at the rough path, he watched a string of saliva stretch from his mouth and darken the soil where it made contact. Stuff of me in there, he thought. Cells from my body. The stuff of stars. That's what we're made from. He wondered who else he was looking at in the muck around his feet. He stood. "'shaded his eyes against the sun and stared down at the beach. "'The tide was out and he could see the thing lying there, "'a great black hump on the smooth golden sands. "'Its tentacles seemed more abundant this morning, "'longer, more numerous, "'although it could simply have been that the sand had shifted them in the night. "'Bryn tied a handkerchief over his mouth and continued the descent. "'He tried to remember coming back up the cliff last night.' It had been dusk, the shadows deceptive, but he could not recall the climb. He must have been on autopilot. He was surprised he had not taken a fall. He followed his own footprints back to the thing on the beach. As he came to the dunes, he realised that he was following more than the single trail he had laid yesterday. There were other disturbances in the sand, strange whipped prints like those of a snake, and more resembling the footprints of birds, though a hundred times bigger. They may have been carved there by the breeze, or left by seaweed which had been blown away. Perhaps they were caused by thousands of burrowing worms blowing bubbles through the damp sand. None of these options explained why all trails led to the dead thing. Brun approached, trying not to step on the other prints, afraid he would sense what had made them. As a child, he would avoid cracks in the pavement. Step on a crack, break your mother's back. Perhaps old habits never died at all, but just lay in wait eternally. Seagulls still buzzed the corpse, and as they turned and spiralled away, they called out in
1: distress. The distress was echoed in his head, a phantom throb like someone else's pain. The sun was hidden today, but it was not cold. A warm breeze blew in off the sea, carrying
5: with it hints of the deep and desert islands. As Bryn came to a standstill, he kicked a bottle washed up the night before. He picked it up, expecting a message but it was empty of hope. He squatted on his haunches and wondered what the thing had been, where it had been. Six miles down on the ocean bed, perhaps its mate waited even now, moving through unimaginable pressures in a vain search for its companion. Or maybe there was more of them, a whole community, searching, rising from the bottom, air sacs inflating, flesh billowing out as the pressures decreased. He shook his head and stood again, The sand was soft beneath his feet, still wet, but drying now as the tide had left it alone for a while. He stepped forward, ready to touch the hide of the dead creature, run his hand along its tattered mass and look for signs by which he could identify it. Great clots of flesh hung from its torn skin, bulging, dried up in the sun. He reached out. He was within one step of the thing. The sand became softer, as if hollowed out from below. But something grabbed him and turned him around, an inherent sense of self-preservation, and before he knew it he was walking back along the beach. His spare camera banged against his leg, unused, his head pulsed with the headache that had been plaguing him since last night. He'd had a fit, there had been a shadow at the window,
1: yet he felt more alone now than he ever had since Helen's death. Bryn did not want to climb back up the cliff path, that
5: would have felt too much like defeat so he headed to the base of the cliffs instead. Sand gave way to rocks, protruding like the petrified remains of unknown creatures. A seagull landed nearby, glanced at him and then took flight again, cawing its way out to sea. Nursed among the rocks were pools, darkened by the sea plants clogging their edges. There was an occasional pink flash of a sea anemone feeling at the water, and secret scamperings hinted at crabs and other creatures hidden in their own temporary ecosystem. Bryn wondered what it felt like to be trapped like that every day, and he squatted next to one of the pools, swishing the water and watching the reflections of the sky distort
1: above his head. He clambered over the rocks for a while until he found a spot out of sight of the beach. His jacket provided adequate protection
5: against the damp sand, and he lay with his hands behind his head, eyes closed. He relished the cleansing warmth of the sun on his face. The steady beat of the sea was soporific, and he felt time drifting away from him his senses withdrawing. Sound came to the fore, the sea singing different songs depending on where it struck the shore. From behind him, the soft hush of the salt waters shifting tons of sand. Nearer, a roar as it stroked patiently at the receding land. In ten million years, this would all have changed. The sea would have eaten this place. The sea ate everything in the end, wearing it all down over massive expanses of time which it alone could afford to expend waiting. Eventually, like a salmon to its birthing pool, everything went back to the sea. Somewhere in there was all of history, way beyond simple human understanding. Helen had died in the sea. Her body had never been found. Perhaps there were bits of her in the massive dead thing on the beach, atoms she had owned now given over to something else.
1: She died a long way from here, Bryn knew, That something that size could swim forever. He had always hated himself for not
5: hearing her final words, and the nightmares he had were guessed at versions, guilt trying to fill in the blanks. The worst times were when she blamed him. However much he tried to convince himself that it could never have been his fault, the words followed him into waking, and set terrible seeds of doubt in his mind.
1: Time passed, the sun moved. Bryn slid slowly into sleep. When he stirred it was late in the afternoon and the sun was already bedding down for the night. He stood stiffly, brushed himself down, shivered and wondered why the cold had not awoken him. His head was still
5: thumping and his body had begun to ache even more from the battering it had received last night. His fingertips were bruised blue. He picked up his rucksack and noticed how far in the tide had come, creeping up on him, patient, unhurried. One day, if he was not careful, it would have him, just as it had taken Helen. He made his way back along the beach until he came to the top of the dunes. The thing was still there. He was tempted to approach it again, but something warned him off. He tried to convince himself that it was a simple matter of not wanting to invade its grave privacy. He climbed the cliff path, panting, breathless, his knee joints burning and his side stabbing with ice-cold stitch. He had to stop three times on the way up, and for the last fifty feet, when the sun had truly set and he felt he was navigating by memory alone, he constantly expected to feel nothing beneath his next step, a wide, black nothing that ended with him broken on rocks a few frantic heartbeats below. At the last, he had an incredible clear urge to turn around and go back down, in the dark along a path that would surely spill him to his death. Sense and logic prevailed, and he found his way back to his caravan, where something that had been working at the back of his mind for the entire climb came to the fore, the memory of what he had seen in the setting sun. The dead thing lay there with its tentacles, barely visible before, spread out across the sand like the spokes of a giant wheel. Just laying there and waiting to turn. Bryn tried to prepare himself something to eat, but his eyes were forever drawn to the window. He kept imagining a face there, staring in at him, a face made of the same stuff as the dead thing on the beach, the stuff of unknown stars. So he closed the curtains. It did not work. The outside was now merely hidden from view, allowing anything the opportunity to approach unseen. And seeing slivers of night through the threadbare curtain was worse than seeing the whole pane of glass. One eye, bloodshot and reflecting his own fear, would be more dreadful than a complete face. Soup burned to the side of the saucepan, blackened
1: and coagulated into something barely resembling food. Bryn cursed and began to eat. Later he took out his notebook and began jotting observations of the dead creature. He made rough sketches of
5: the corpse, estimated its size and weight, and frightened himself in doing so. He was writing The Book of the Sea. He had been writing it ever since Helen died, but every chapter seemed to increase the distance between him and her memory. Still, he hoped a resolution would reveal itself soon, a twist in the forked tail of his grief. He arched off the seat and hit the floor, pen and notebook sent flying. A groan of despair escaped him as he realised what was happening. Then nothing else, because his neck was in tension as his head banged against the carpet once more. This time the fit lasted longer and was more extreme. Light seemed to flee the caravan, scared by his thrashing, and the sounds of the various parts of his body impacting the floor, doors and cupboards faded to a whisper. Something stank, something worse than burnt soup, more rancid than the chemical toilet he had not been tending properly. Faintness snowflaked his eyes. He vomited and felt the warmth across his face and neck. The thump of pumping blood filled his ears, sounding vaguely like the sea and as coherent thought retreated, he was sure he heard words in the rushes. More ideas of Helen came in, but this time there were new visions of what she had suffered. So new, so detailed, so obviously heartfelt, that Bryn could not possibly have created them himself. They were put there for him to see. Helen in the car, shattered windscreen shards opening her to the seawater and spewing dark clouds as she sank, trapped towards the ocean floor. Final breath held dearly, going stale inside of her, slipping murderous fingers through her lungs to clasp her heart as she saw, below, down past the car's bonnet, a total darkness. Not just a lack of light, but something more. And she kept on falling. And Bryn would never know when or where she struck bottom because, as her lungs expelled their last, the image and the pain faded away to nothing. His senses crawled back like whipped dogs seeking succour. He gasped at the air, moaned, tried to scream but puked again instead. This time he was able to turn on his side so that he did not have to swallow it. The caravan door was swinging in the morning breeze. The place stank and he was rolling in his own filth. He must have been out all night. After much struggling he stood and peeled off his clothes. His arms, legs, back and buttocks were tender and bruised. His head throbbed as if his skull had been shrunk to compress his brain. He had bitten his tongue and the insides of his cheeks. Yet he took solace in the pain each breath gave him. He found some clean clothes and dressed and made a pot of tea over the primus stove. The cold hit him all at once, retrieving the memory of last night like hypnotic suggestions. He suddenly needed to leave the caravan. The smell of vomit and shit hung heavy in its staid atmosphere, and he could make out dents and scrapes where he had been flipped about during his fits. To stay there would have been to tempt fate, and though fate was about as believable as malignant demons, given a choice, Bryn would tempt neither. So he left the caravan and headed to the cliffs, and on the way he saw trails on the dew-laden grass, slick sweeps of disturbed moisture where something had passed by not too long ago. Soon, he found himself at the head of the path leading down to the beach. Daylight, fresh air, the eternal hush of the sea onto the rocks below, all helped to clear his mind of what had happened, both the fear of the fits and what he had seen while he was incapacitated. The pain felt good, because it was good to be alive. The thing was even darker than before, almost black, and its tentacles were once again stretched out in dead abandon. Some were buried... Others snaked along the sand as though seeking a comfortable resting place. From his high vantage point, the dead creature looked like a huge drift of oil on the beach. On the way down, Bryn wondered yet again at how he had navigated this path in the semi-darkness. It was so narrow at times that his shoulder brushed against the cliff face as he passed, and showers of stones and sand snickered down onto the rocks below. And still the sea mocked his fears with its incessant song. He had not brought his camera with him, nor his notebooks. He had left his jacket in the caravan, and now he shook and shivered as he waited for the sun to purge the shadows he was descending through. The path was slick with dew. On the beach, a line of seaweed indicated high tide. Bryn thought it was further up the beach than he had yet seen it. He knew about tides and surges and seasonal highs. The sea had been his obsession since Helen had been lost to it and he knew that there was nothing extraordinary about last night. Really, he thought, nothing at all? What about that fit and those dreams? What about the trails and the grass? The sea was quite rough today, whipped into a frenzy by westerly winds, and where it struck the rocks near the base of the path it threw sheets of spray into the air. The wind carried it to Bryn, cooled his face, spotted his clothes. He opened his mouth and closed his eyes, wondering if some of Helen was splashing across him now, bits of the stuff that had made her spread across the oceans after so long. He would touch the thing today. It must have been there for several days, a decomposition was splitting it and venting its gases and melting its insides, but he would run his hand across those tentacles, feel its hide, feel the truth of it. He walked through the surf so that he did not leave a trail in the sand. It seemed the right thing to do. "'because there were other prints there already, "'strange snake-like patterns winding to and fro across the beach. "'And as he neared the thing, he saw that it had begun to change. "'It was flattening, settling down into the sand, "'spreading a dark stain and becoming a new bridgehead "'between the land and sea, known and unknown. "'The tentacles stretched further than ever, "'but even these were breaking down and giving themselves to the beach.' Ryn fell to his knees and scooped up a handful of the darkened sand. It was sticky and heavy, warm and sweet-smelling. He stopped himself from tasting it, though he yearned to know its true scent. He fell on his back next to the corpse and stared up at the new day. He could almost hear the thing rotting, a series of rips and tears over and
1: above the constant hypnosurge of the sea. He closed his eyes. His muscles clenched and then shook in the grip of the sudden
5: violent fit. His eyes turned up in his head. Senses drifted away like breaths in a storm. A gust caressed his skin and then he was gone, a berserker in the dawn, flopping and flipping in the sand like a thing of the sea. Black grit entered his mouth and his eyes and his ears, working its way beneath his clothes, trying to make him a part of the beach just like the dead thing. He saw darkness, felt unbearable pressure, and the icy cold of the unknown depths. Helen was in his head, or he in hers, and he finally knew what she was thinking at the moment life left her body to its doom. He knew, but it did not comfort him. Not as it should have. It scared him. Even in the depths of this strange fit, he wondered how her final wish would come to be fulfilled. She had never wanted to leave him.
1: Someday, she would be with him again. Her last thought had been of him. Bryn opened his eyes, blinked rapidly, and rolled onto his side. His bones felt brittle and liable
5: to break at the slightest impact. The thing had all but gone, now little more than a hump in the sand. It had spread as it came apart, and as he stood, Bryn saw that most of the beach had taken on a dark tint. He walked across and tried the path to the clifftops, but he could not climb. He willed his limbs to take him up, but they rebelled, showing him instead the trail in the sand that led down to the edge of the sea, and further. He doggedly sought out other routes to the ground above, shambling along at the base of the cliffs, looking for handholds and cracks. But all paths were lost to him now. The gale increased, driving the sea into angry white breakers, going from nowhere to nowhere with ferocious intent. He was sure the wind started on the beach and ended on the beach. He could see a horizon, but it seemed false, a trick done with mirrors. The top of the cliffs looked a million miles away. He felt like crying, but the tears would not come. It was only as he finally followed the trails to the water, felt the sea close around his thighs, tasted brine on his tongue, sensed new depths opening up to him as he moved further and further out, that he felt truly in control once more.
2: You, Tim. There are so many kinds of horror, aren't there? Overt action packed right out there and in your face, sorts of things, blood and terror splashing, screaming. And then there are tales like this one gentle, ominous, inevitable, creepy, and maybe just a little sad. I like this story very much, and I hope you do too. Stop by the forum and hold forth on it, yes? It's easy now to become a member, just click on the buttons. Tim sounds like such a serious fellow I know, but the last time I saw him he, Brian Keane, and a few others were chasing each other, I think I think with water balloons around a hall and out into the world it it might have been balloons but this was after a world horror gross-out contest and those things generate some wet and icky props so it might have been anything and at this time tim was the vice president of the horror writers association well that was long ago and thank you simon hildebrand for your reading And welcome back. Simon is a web and game developer from Australia. He currently lives in Sydney. In addition to narrating stories for the Starship Sofa, Drabblecast, Escape Pod, and, well, yes, us, he does web development at Red Ant. And in his spare time, he develops games with tools like Android and Piglet and Web application with rails, and I have no idea what any of that is, because, as you may realize, I am a man of the last century. Always have been, even back in the last century. Ah, well, that, as we say, is that. It was a good evening, yes? Calm, quiet, warm, but not horrid. And don't forget the book, Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. And don't forget the Joe Haldeman event. And please do not forget the other neighborhoods of the District of Wonders. The Starship Sofa with Captain Tony C. Smith at the helm. Crime City Central with Inspector Jack Calverly. And Protecting Project Pulp with Dave Frontier Deathsong Robson. So, I would have you be up and doing, children of the night. Be bright and chipper. The rain might hold off long enough for you to get home dry. If your walk takes you close to the water's edge, watch out, please. Oh, no, not for tentacled creatures, no, 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 no. Ours is an inland sea. Our monsters are more recognizable, more homely, land-based. Things from the dark that we know, yes. But the Great Lakes do have their creatures and their dark tales. So be careful of the water in the night. When you're home, go to bed. Do not think of leviathans and tentacles, and they, they will not think of you. They will not invade what should be the evening's pleasant dreams. Hmm. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.